HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Keeper. Today, we're going to be talking about humane washing. Um, we have a very interesting show lined up here. My guest is Andrew DeCoriolis. He's the executive director of Farm Forward, uh, a group that I had not heard of before. But now that I looked at their board of directors, I'm like filled with admiration, goggle-eyed. In fact, um, Andrew brings extensive experience in sustainability, grassroots organizing, and corporate leadership in both the public and private sectors. And prior to joining uh, Farm Forward, Andrew was part of the executive leadership team at Lucid Design Group, a software company that empowers civic, commercial, and educational customers to track and reduce their energy consumption. So let's start, Andrew. Thank you. First first of all, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, And let's start. Can you just give people an idea of what what is Farm Forward and you know, your executive director, what does that mean? Absolutely, Katie. I've I've never been been an executive director of anything except my life. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me, Katie. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's a pleasure. So tell us about Farm Forward. Farm Forward is a nonprofit dedicated to promoting conscientious food choices that reduce farmed animal suffering and promote sustainable agriculture. And as executive director, um, you know, you do all kinds of things. You do everything from fundraising, of course, uh, oh, to yeah. uh, uh, corporate negotiations. Uh, we do consulting work with foundations and farmers and food companies. And we also do a fair amount of what we describe as uh, narrative change work. So we do work uh, helping write books and make documentaries and speak with the media. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because um, it's really all about getting that message out there, isn't it? That's right. Um, so you guys, let's jump right into this, because you guys um, resigned from the Global Animal Partnership, which I think many consider sort of the gold standard of humane certifications. Um, So first of all, tell us why you resigned and then take us through a little bit of what humane washing means to Farm Forward. Sure. Why don't I start there? Okay. Um, Humane washing is very similar to greenwashing. You know, when you see advertisements from Chevron talking about how they're fighting climate change, you know, I think most consumers now think, Okay, something's going on here. Right. Humane washing is the marketing of animal products, meat, dairy, and eggs to conscientious consumers by making them seem more humane with deceptive packaging, labeling, or misleading claims. 
Uh-huh. And as to the question about uh, Global Animal Partnership, so we were one of the founding board members of GAP. We spent 10 years on the board and our organization donated thousands of staff hours to helping to create that certification. Right. We, we got in on the ground floor because we hoped that the certification and, and Whole Foods involvement with the certification right. would be a tool to help educate uh, consumers and a, a, a tool, a mechanism to incentivize farmers to continue to improve over time. That continuous improvement was really important to us. And unfortunately, sure. in the last few years, we came to believe that GAP was really no longer serving either of those purposes. We believe that uh, now GAP does more to confuse consumers than it does to educate them. And it does little to incentivize farmers to improve their standards over what they're already doing. Well, the only incentive is that you want to get your product into, say, Whole Foods. I mean, I worked with a right. pork company, for example, like five, six years ago, um, and they were desperate to get into Whole Foods, um, but they had to pass that GAP certification, which, you know, given their mm, limitations, shall we say, uh, was mm -hmm. very unlikely <laughs> to happen, um, mm -hmm. even though, to be honest with you, I mean, I saw the farm multiple times. I mean, the pigs were not unhappy. It was not a bad place at all. It was run by a very wealthy uh, investment banker guy, you know, hobby farm kind of thing. And um, and he was doing a pretty good job with his pigs and he had a very good guy running them. But it was not going to meet GAP certification. That was for sure. Um, I think largely because he couldn't let the pigs roam, um, did not have pasture. And so they were confined and he was at one point letting them like root around and they literally tore up all the trees on his property. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of, so, I mean, there are real reasons why animals are confined. Oh, we can talk about that. Um, but anyway, um, I, I want you to give people a list of commonly seen labels and then differentiate because one of the uh, tables, which I really liked in your report, um, was that you had, uh, labels that are created by industry and labels that are created by independent uh, certifiers. And so uh, take us through some of those labels so people understand what the difference is and know what they're looking at when they see them. I think most of your listeners can probably relate to the experience of you know walking into a grocery store and looking at a wall of, let's say, eggs or meat and seeing dozens of claims and marketing terms and logos and seals you see things like all natural and humanely raised and free range and USD organic. Yep. For, for most consumers, it's impossible to tell the difference between what those uh, labels and claims mean and more importantly, what they translate to for conditions uh, on the ground, on farms for animals, which is really what we care about. Right. And we put the labels and claims and certifications into a couple of buckets. The first are um, what we describe as you know, claims. These are words you might see in a package like all natural or humanely raised or free range. Right. These claims have very little legal definition, if any, when it comes to how animals are raised. For example, all natural has nothing to do with the ways in which animals are, are raised on farms. It has everything to do with the kinds of preservative or additives that are put into the product after an animal's been killed. Mm -hmm. And terms like humanely raised have incredibly weak definitions and extremely little uh, regulatory oversight from the USDA. So you can right. describe basically anything as humanely raised. So labels aren't very meaningful mostly. And in order for labels to be meaningful, they really have to be paired with a certification that's trustworthy. And it's really hard to know what those are. But for certifications, we 
uh, put them into two broad categories. The first are what we describe as industry certifications. These are certifications that have been developed by meat companies and agricultural trade groups, primarily with the goal of marketing their products is better than they are. Yeah. These are certifications like um, uh, the United Egg Producers, uh, which you might see a little green check mark on a, a package of eggs, uh, or um, a certification called American Humane Certified, or one that was recently launched by this massive chicken company, um, uh, Mount Air Farms, uh, mm. which launched this really deceptive uh, uh, certification called One Health, uh, which is supposedly all about environmental and public health and animal welfare, uh, when in fact it just certifies standard industry practices. Uh, so <laughs> that's that's one bucket of certifications, these, these industry right. certifications. And then the other are independent certifications. And these are created and operated by independent uh, nonprofits like Global Animal Partnership um, that are more meaningful than industry certifications. Right. And so what are those, I mean, what, what are the standards, for instance, that make Global Animal Partnership or uh, Ameri Animal Welfare Approved or mm -hmm. Certified Humane, I think is also independent, right? Am I remembering that correctly? That's right. That's correct. Um, so those are the three that I'm most familiar with in terms of independent certifications. What what kind of what kinds of of um, you know requirements are they uh, demanding of of growers um, mm -hmm. to assure you you know the consumer that they're getting what they think they're getting? Well, here's the rub with all <laughs> these certifications. There's a huge range of um, conditions and standards uh, for farmed animals. So. Um, Global Animal Partnership and Certified Humane are what are described as tiered certifications. They have okay. multiple levels. Um, GAP, for example, has what they call steps. So you see step one through step five. Um, step one, which are most of the products that they sell at Whole Foods, those are animals raised in modified factory farms. Mm -hmm. Now, what they market primarily, what Whole Foods uh, markets and what GAP uh, uses you know, imagery in their marketing are mostly from farms that are at step four and above, where animals are required to have continuous access to pasture and to be at very low densities and to use uh, better genetics and so forth. So when consumers, and we know this from polling data, when consumers think about or see these certifications like GAP, they expect that animals are given access to pasture, when in reality, the majority of the animal products sold under the GAP label come from animals raised in industrial modified factory farms. When you say modified, now, what do you mean by that? So these are going to be industrial operations. Meaning uh, that, that there are thousands be, of animals. Exactly. In a, so in a confined a, area. Correct. A chicken, a chicken barn that might be the same chicken barn that uh, a farmer used to raise birds for Tyson. Uh, but now they, uh, instead of raising 40 or 50,000 birds in a house, Maybe they raise 25 or 30,000 birds in house, mm -hmm. and maybe they put some straw bales so birds can, you know, maybe perch on them. Uh, maybe they change the lighting a little bit so there's a little bit more, uh, more hours of darkness so birds can sleep because one of the things that conventional farms do is mess with animals' sleep cycle so they grow faster. So there are small tweaks that uh, are made uh, to improve conditions. And let's not, you know, we, we don't need to pretend that these don't improve the conditions. They do. Right. Um, but this isn't what consumers expect when they go to Whole Foods and spend, you know, in some cases, two or three times the cost of conventional products to get what they think is you know, something that comes from an animal that was given access to pasture, 
it's you know a huge gulf between the conditions that are actually on the ground for a gap step one or gap step two animal and what consumers think they should be getting. Uh-huh. That's very sobering. So um, let's talk, I'm going to quote a couple of things here that just uh, struck me in that report. Uh, here's one, uh, high functioning animal welfare certification is theoretically possible, but in the contemporary US, it appears to be one of those common sense ideas that is impossible to do well given current political exigencies. I want you to talk a little bit about those political exigencies. What do you mean by that? Yeah, what I mean by that is certifications today, like Global Animal Partnership, are voluntary. Mm -hmm. Farmers uh -huh. are only going to put these labels on their packages if they think they're getting a marketing benefit, if they think it's helping their sales, uh, if it's helping their company reach more uh, customers. Uh -huh. So, if a certification, let's say Global Animal Partnership, were to set their standard very, very high, like they are for, let's say, step five or animal welfare approved certification, those standards are, are quite high. Uh -huh. um, producers don't have to put them on their on their packaging. Uh, they don't have to change their practices to, um, you know, uh, to sell their products. And so, you know, they want to do, farmers want to do as little as possible to change their operation, to sell their product for as much as possible. So if another certification says, okay, we're going to give you the certified humane seal, and all you have to do is take a few of the birds out of the house and put some straw bales in, and then you can use this logo uh, mm -hmm. that says certified humane, and we know that consumers really think it uh, is great and increases sales by X and Y, um, farmers are likely to do that. Um, and if another certification is to come along and say, well, we want you to do a little bit more, we want you to do better than that. Our standards mm -hmm. are going to be stricter. They're going to require that animals have access to pasture, et cetera. Why would a farmer choose to spend more money and invest and give animals more access to pasture and, um, you know, maybe do a whole bunch of other things on their farm that are required in order to meet the higher standard if they're getting the marketing benefit from making fewer changes at a lower cost? I understand the human nature element of that, yes. <laughs> so yeah. what you're saying, though, is that politically speaking, because we don't have uh, enforceable standards on animal welfare, but, I mean, we have some. There are some. There are standards, um, admittedly pretty low. Um, but because we don't have a higher quality or a higher bar, um, and the, there is no political will to make that happen. And I have to say, it would be a very tough sell to <laughs> most guys who are raising animals. I mean, I work a lot with Diamond Ranch. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Very but they, familiar, yeah. You know, they their animals are out on pasture. I mean, they do it all right. And they have like a whole inspection program and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But they're able, the way they're able to make this work for their farmers is to guarantee them a price point. That's right. And so if companies won't do that, it's going to be really tough for farmers, however much will they may have, uh, personally speaking. I mean, I, I don't like to vilify anybody who is doing the hard work of, you know, raising uh, meat animals for consumption. It's just it's a real it's a tough, tough gig. And uh, there are a lot of things that are getting in the way of farmers or growers doing a better job. Uh, than they are able to do. So, um, it's a, but I, I do think it's a very political problem. I, I, I don't see it so much as, uh, yeah, as anything but it, that actually. Yeah, it's a real race to the bottom for farmers. It um, is. You know, because of the consolidation of the meat industry, Absolutely. there are very few options for farmers to sell Correct. animals into the system. And in, in some of the industries like, you know, like chicken, um, 
you know, farmers are, are, are more or less indentured. Uh, you know, they, they are told oh, totally. how, how they're going to raise birds. They're going to be told how buildings have to look. They're going to be told, yes. uh, you know, what, what feed they have to use They're You know, they don't own the chicks. The only thing that they own are the dead chickens and the poop and the manure. That's right. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, there's very, there's very little incentive for those farmers, you know, who don't have a lot of power in that system uh, to change their practices. So without, you know, right. meaningful regulation from governments, uh, or, you know, stepping outside to have some of these kind of, uh, you know, operations that incentivize farmers to, uh, and pay farmers to uh, raise animals in better conditions. Uh, you're right. I think it's going to be very hard to, to change the system. Absolutely. Okay. Let's, let's, let's jump to the next thing, which is, um, I want people to recognize the overlooked aspects of animal welfare, which you describe extensively in your report. And I think these are, some of these are very important. Um, and some of them, I also think are uh, completely unrealistic. But um, so the five uh, important overlooked aspects of animal welfare that you guys describe are intensively confining animals instead of raising them primarily on pasture. Uh, two, insufficiently exercising and socializing animals. Three, utilizing genetically modified animals prone to disease and chronic pain. Four, preventing natural weaning periods in the da da dairy industry. And five, culling all newborn male chicks. I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here because like I said, I've worked with a lot of, or, you know, interviewed, been to, visited a lot of farms. There isn't enough pasture in the world to pasture all these animals. I mean, you know, until we stop growing corn and soy, like maybe if we did that, <laughs> you know, maybe if America's pasture land rolled back into pasture instead of being cultivated for, you know, biofuels and food additives, yeah, maybe, but sort of that, Never going to happen. And then, what 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 would a, what is a farmer expected to do with all those male chicks? I mean, you mentioned something. I saw something on there about how they're starting to try to sex the eggs, mm -hmm. so that they can call the eggs before the animal is born. And I agree with you. I mean, the the method of disposing of these animals is truly disgusting. Um, but if you're a farmer, uh, what are you what are you supposed to do? And then and then there, the other thing that that struck me, um, you know is also the whole issue of, of weaning calves. Um, I think any farmer who has ever raised a dairy animal is going to tell you, you have to wean the calf pretty young. I mean, maybe not six days, but six weeks. That's pretty standard, I think. And I don't, and I don't know of a single farmer who thinks that's inhumane, actually, even though, of course, the animals cry piteously and it's sad. But, you know, if you're, if you're in the business of selling milk, uh, putting it down the throat of a calf is not going to keep your dairy operating. So, I mean, you know, these are hard, these are hard things to sell to the population that is actually doing this work. So I'm wondering, like, where's the wiggle room there? You know what I'm saying, Andrew? Like, this is pretty intense, what you guys are suggesting here. Yeah, I mean, there are practices that uh, happen on you know, virtually all uh, production farms that animal welfare scientists tell us are um, causing suffering to farmed animals, but are baked into the production production model of that product. And that's, you're right, that's challenging. The genetic modification, I 100% I agree with you on that. I mean, but that's Jim Keen, right? You know, that's who brings that to the party. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that one. That's one that, mm -hmm. you know, I think doesn't get uh, doesn't get talked about no much. Play. And, no yeah, play. I think most yeah. most of the public don't don't know what that look like, what that looks right. like. So over the last, you know, 40 or 50 years, breeders have managed to modify genetics so that poultry grow roughly twice the size in half the time. 
Right. And the effect of that incredibly rapid growth is a tremendous amount of suffering for chickens and turkeys raised from meat. Yep. That means that birds have difficulty walking, means that uh, birds have difficulty breathing and you know, die at very high rates of things like um, uh, ascites or uh, uh, heart defects and heart attacks. Mm. Uh, you know, you talk to you talk to farmers who are contract chicken growers, and they'll talk about you know what they call flip over birds. Uh, you know, right. birds that basically just fall, you know, flip over and die because of uh, of heart disease. You know, these are incredibly unhealthy animals. Yeah, that are kept alive through you know an intensive uh, uh, process of managing their environment. Uh, and through the you know routine use of uh, sub therapeutic antibiotics and nitrophores right. to keep them from you know uh, dying, and we you know breeders have pushed these birds to grow as fast as possible while still basically you know staying alive just enough to have a profitable product. Right. <laughs> um, that, that, that's a yeah. dark industry, um, that, and that one is that very desperately dark. needs reform. And also one that is controlled by basically four companies around the world. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty wild. Right? I mean, we talk about, you know, monocultures and how there's, yeah. you know, consolidation of, let's say, the seed industry, corn around the world, you know, yeah. when in reality, two companies own something like 75% of all chickens and turkeys in the genetics. world of all of the genetics, you know, yes. there, there are two companies, Cobb and Aviagen. Right. Um, yeah. right. And, you know, they have just this unbelievable monopoly on, um, you know, the building blocks of, of life in this case of, Absolutely. of the genetics of, of poultry. And I'm going to say something else about that, because a lot of folks uh, buy chicks and raise uh, backyard birds, right? And what, what, where are they buying them? They're buying them from Cobb or Aviagen. And I, my brother-in-law raised chicks for years, uh, you know, for meat, meat birds. And, and it was, even though the animals were outside and all of the nice things and everything, you know, they had the same, they weren't growing quite at the rate that they do in a grow outhouse, but mm-hmm. it was pretty damned rapid. And they had the same physical issues. I said to him, why are you buying this kind of bird? You're perpetuating this. You want to grow your own meat birds? Get some heritage breed chicks from somebody. Don't keep buying this stuff. Look at these animals. They can't walk. He's like, oh, That's yeah, right. but they're going to go to the slaughter. Anyway, they're I mean, not, yeah, they're, not designed. Anecdote, they're not designed just, to be raised on pasture. They're not. And it's just, and it's really interesting that people, even people who think they're doing the right thing and want to buy the backyard birds, blah, 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 they're still getting the same stuff. They're not because they don't know that there are other options. So we got to take a short, short break here and then we'll be right back. So please stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. So I want to go on because I don't want to spend too much time on the genetics, but there are other, I mean, chickens are the ones that really uh, are really getting uh, brutalized here, but they, they have run into some problems with that woody breast syndrome, for example. I know you've heard about that, but for people who haven't heard about it, the muscle is growing so fast on the breast that the fibers become too tight and it literally turns into a product like wood. That's just one of the 
um, issues. And you make a point in this report of some companies are starting to discuss uh, a slower grow out for the birds. Can you just like, just for a sec, just to wrap this little poultry bit up here, can you talk about how some of those impacts on the health of the bird, the fact that they're not as profitable when they, you know, when they get sick and die at the rates that they do um, and have things like woody breast, like there, there is now humane washing around that aspect of it. I, I just wanted to bring that out as well. Yeah, it's a great question. So yeah, woody breast is one of several, what are called muscle myopathies. These are, um, mm-hmm. you know, changes to the muscles of animals because they, don't have enough oxygen pumping through their bodies because their their bodies haven't uh, developed sufficiently and the breasts have grown so large and so quickly that they're not able to you know get enough oxygenated blood to these muscles Incredible. so they become woody or uh, white striped and you know, most consumers most of the folks listening if you buy chicken you go into a grocery store and you pull a pack off the shelf you'll see you know these little veins of white fat and white striping in in the product um, and that's because of this fast growth Mm-hmm. And there, there are efforts early stage uh, underway to try and address the genetic suffering of animals by um, requiring that uh, programs like Global Animal Partnership use uh, genetics that are slightly higher welfare, slightly slower yeah. growing maybe, uh, that yeah. have better welfare outcomes. Now those standards uh, are in the very early stages there's about 100 food companies, maybe more, uh, around the U.S. and Europe that have committed to addressing uh, genetics in their supply chain and improving the genetic welfare of, of birds. Uh-huh. But those commitments aren't scheduled to go into effect until 2026 or 2028 in some cases. <laughs> and so it may be another almost decade before we really meaningfully address uh, poultry genetics. Wow. Very, very interesting. Um, I want to go back to the um, another thing that really, it was a great report, by the way. Um, you, you, you referenced in this report something called the halo effect and then tiered certifications, which you alluded to in the first half of the show when we were talking about uh, gap uh, certifications with tier one, two, three, four, five, and five A. So can you talk a little bit about <clears throat> what you meant by the halo effect and then also how these tiered certifications kind of let companies off the hook in an interesting way or you know the certification is a little less you know it's aspirational rather than actual (laughs) yeah so the halo effect happens when you know industrial farmers benefit from the practices and standards of higher welfare pasture farmers without having to really change their standards so you know, Global Animal Partnership, as you said, it's a tiered program. There's step one through five, steps one, two, and parts of step three are animals raised entirely indoors, never given access to uh, the outdoors or pasture. And from consumer uh, polling, we know that when, uh, you know, consumers see the gap label, uh, a, a significant uh, significant number of them think that uh, the label requires birds have access to pasture. And mm-hmm. so what's happening is that, you know, the very small number of step four and five uh, farmers in the GAP program are really sort of giving their face uh, to the entire GAP program. And consumers think, oh, those what those step four and five folks are doing must be what everybody's doing. And, you know, that's yeah. the impression that Whole Foods and other retailers are giving consumers. They're putting out packaging and, and marketing in their stores and online that show, you know, birds running around on pasture and pigs rooting around in grass and um hmm. 
you know, those do align with standards in the GAP program, but only a small number of the farms that they certify and only a smaller number of the products they sell in stores actually meet those standards. So for many consumers, when you go into a Whole Foods, you might only find step one and two products, uh, especially for yeah. poultry. And so, Absolutely. Yep. so, so those, those small number of farmers who are really raising animals in the best possible conditions are sort of getting the short, short shrift here. Right. Um, yeah, that's, that is very, <laughs> they're getting short shrift and, and they're being, uh, you know, deceived quite honestly. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about, um, the, your report sends this message that certifications are, you know, at best, pretty toothless, at worst, deliberate efforts on the part of the industry to deceive the public. So what what kinds of legislative fixes would you say would start to mandate animal welfare? And I'm going to use as an example something that an economist that I talked to a couple of weeks ago brought up, which was California was able to really make a huge change in the welfare of poultry layers, egg, egg layers, uh, simply by mandating that the birds have a bigger uh, spot to roost in, a better nesting box, more than a square foot, and that they had access to, you know, getting out of their box, like that they could scratch around, take a dust bath, you know, do what, mm-hmm. do what chickens like to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And that and that's and that because that was mandated as a state law in California that an animal that it was not produced up to that standard could not be sold in the state of California. That forced the egg industry in Iowa, which is, you know, one of the major egg centers of the nation. um, Mm -hmm. It forced them to uh, develop a whole different um, process. Now, it doesn't mean that that they don't still do it the same old bad way for other states that don't have those laws. Um, but it does mean that they have a whole separate section of eggs that go to California. And that's, mm-hmm. to me, that is the kind of legislation that would really move the needle. So I'm wondering, does Farm Forward engage in lobbying activities? Are you working with legislators, most of whom, by the way, are just plain stupid and certainly don't care about animal welfare? Like, I think we all know that they are looking for the next campaign contribution pretty much across the board maybe with exception of Cory Booker, who's had the nerve <laughs> to actually stand up and say, we need to change this. But I mean, you know, without, you know, absent a few of those renegades, basically the entire Congress is filled with, you know, either stupid, greedy, venal, or otherwise, uh, you know, unconscionable reprobates, in my opinion, especially the Republican Party. I'll say that on the record. Anyway, but what do you so what do you guys do about that? Like how because I think those are the fixes to me. Yeah. You can talk all you want. But until you make it the law that something has to be a certain way, you are just not going to change consumers minds. They want the cheap chicken, Andrew. They want it and they want it now. And you're going to get hurt if you get in the way of that. Right. I mean, yeah, Farm Forward absolutely supports legislation. You know, we were supporters of California's Prop 12, which you talked a little bit about. Right. That's that was around the uh, confinement of of uh, chickens that egg are birds. egg yeah. laying. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and around pigs, the use of gestation crates, which are oh, right, these right. tiny crates that they put uh, pregnant uh, sows in. Yeah. But what I think everybody needs to remember is that you know Prop Prop 12, uh, while you know maybe improving conditions a little bit. 
uh, is not a panacea. You know, this is a, a small, small, modest step in the right direction. But again, when consumers, and we know this from consumer polling that we've conducted, when consumers see the cage-free label, they again, they think it means much more than it really does. It doesn't require, for example, that animals have access to the outdoors. You know, a cage-free barn is probably the same barn that they were raising birds in in a confined cage system, but with you know slightly larger aviary you know cages or aviary pens. Right. You know, this is still a barn with forty-five thousand birds in it. Again, who've yeah. been genetically manipulated to produce a lot of eggs, much to the detriment of their of their well-being. It's incredibly dusty. It can be hot. The air quality is often very terrible. You know, these are birds that never see the light of day. They never get to express, you know, most of their natural behaviors. So yeah, this is a step in the right direction, no question. Um, but it isn't where we should stop. And this is, you know, this is something cage free, for example, is something that the animal protection movement has spent almost 20 years now pushing. Correct. And it is an important first step, but we've got a long way to go. And that's what I think most uh, of the public don't know right now. They think, oh, well, we made it to cage free, so we must be doing something good. And <laughs> right. the, the reframe that we'd like people to do is, great, we've, we've gone cage free, now what's next? And, right. and, and that's the piece that we really need to be thinking about collectively. And you mentioned Cory Booker, you know, Cory Booker's legislation he introduced in the, in the Senate uh, and Ro Khanna introduced in the House, the Farm System Reform Act, yep. is absolutely the kind of legislation that we need nationally. This is a, a bill that would uh, phase out uh, CAFOs, uh, concentrated animal feeding operations, and would yep. ban the construction of new CAFOs, and would provide billions of dollars for farmers to transition to, you know, pasture-based extensive forms of agriculture and other forms of non-animal agriculture. That's an incredibly important piece of legislation, and we'd like to see more senators and representatives sign on as co-sponsors this term. So, you know, it was introduced yeah. last Congress; it was reintroduced this Congress. We'd like to see more more people join, and we're actively uh, working with. You know, organizations who are lobbying and with our own grassroots networks to uh, put pressure on legislators to support this kind of uh, bill. Yeah, that it's it's a it's a very heavy lift. I mean, I'm sure you nobody knows better than you the the uh, the money, the monetary power that is lined up to make sure that none of this happens. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, a the lot of money gets thrown at these guys. Yeah, the agricultural industry is, you know, one of the top three or four uh, sort of lobbying industries in the country. You know, defense and pharmaceuticals and agriculture. So, yeah, of course, it's a this is a is this a huge lift? This is a generational lift. Uh, but that isn't to say it's it's not possible, and it isn't to say it isn't what's necessary. And so we've right. got to we've got to push on it. There isn't an alternative. Um, you know, but just like you know, let's say healthcare. Uh, you know, having. Uh, having better options uh, for healthcare nationally might have seemed you know, a total, uh, total long shot 20 years ago, you know, after decades of organizing, we're, we're now right. on a path to, you know, getting, uh, you know, getting better healthcare in this country first, the Affordable Maybe. Care Act, and now legislators yeah. are moving further and proposing more versions of nationalized healthcare. The same kinds of progress needs to happen in, uh, in animal agriculture. Right, right. Um, I guess we should wrap it up here, Andrew. Thank you so much for that. Uh, tell people how they can learn more about Farm Forward, support your organization, watch your videos, all of that good stuff. Thanks. Well, we just actually, yeah, we just we just launched a new uh, humane IQ quiz that consumers can take cool. in less than five minutes. It's on our website. It's at the very top. And you can find it at farmforward.com. Fantastic. Andrew, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate your time today. Very good interview. Thanks, Katie. I enjoyed it. Yep. Happy holidays to you all. Thank you, everybody. I'll see you around 
2022. This is the last show for the season. The studio's closing. So thanks an awful lot for tuning in this year and uh, more to come. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>